This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, 40 years in GP information technology. I think it would be interesting to see how this changes people's perception of what general practice is going to be. You know, people are off sick and things happen. You find a way to cope. I don't think there's anyone nowadays who uses all of a GPIT system. Hello, and welcome back to the Scottish National Users Group podcasts. My name's Neil Kelly, and I'm a GP in Dumfries and Galloway, and one of the co-chairs of SNUG. For this podcast, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Jim Campbell. Jim is an old friend who has worked in the field of general practice IT over many years, and I think could be considered our equivalent of a national treasure. He's been a key influencer in the field of general practice information technology over the course of the last 20 years. We met up after a recent GPIT change advisory board, and I asked him a little bit about his new role as the clinical advisor to the reprovisioning programme, and we talked a little bit about his journey through IT in general practice over the years. And then to be topical, we had a little discussion about the current coronavirus and how GPIT needs to up its game in support of the service during a pandemic crisis of this nature. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for agreeing to spend a little time with me today. And uh, it's, it's, it's much, much appreciated. Um, maybe you can kick off just by telling us a little bit about who you are um, and what you're up to at the moment. So my name is Jim Campbell. I qualified in 1978 from Glasgow and was a GP in Irvine from 1982 for a significant number of years. <laughs> your, your mass is clearly uh, creative, a bit like no. mine. So I was 33 years in the practice, worked for the NHS for 40, 40 years as a prescribing person over, over various things. Became involved in IT and became very sad and uh, became a bit of a geek as a, as a result, but thoroughly enjoyed it. So, so, so t- talk us through a little bit about you know, that, that, you know, how did that um, happen, what, you know, what, what, what sort of things did you get involved in? Well, the first thing actually was non-GPIT when I was uh, working in orthopaedics in Paisley, they got one of the first uh, Apple IIs, um, and at that point they were struggling to get a system to keep their discharges up to date, so I actually wrote them a database programme to allow them to record the discharges and run some analysis on it. Yeah. So you started programming from a relatively early I, stage? If you want, I can go back even further than that. When I was at university, um, one of my sister's boyfriends was doing astronomy and physics as a double first. And he had first introduced me to computers. So I actually recorded a, a computer program onto punch tape. Those, those days they didn't actually have VDUs. My goodness. Okay. So a, a real dinosaur. And in fact, the first VDUs was uh, we programmed a lunar landing game for their open day. So that was the first time we got exposed to using a visual display unit as opposed to a teletype. So I have a long history. So, so, so maybe you'd uh, um, 
develop some sort of lunar landing module for our next uh, snug members day to provide a little bit of light entertainment. We could do something like that, I'm sure. Anyway, in terms of your your GPIT um, journey, if you like, how did that evolve? So that evolved, there were sort of three of the younger partners in practice thought it would be a good idea to get a computer system in those days basically to do repeat prescriptions. And at that point, GPASS was available. So we purchased our first, what was then an Apricot Zen, which worked off floppy disks. And our, at that point, our practice was 18,000. We could back up the whole practice onto five floppy disks, which weren't double-sided, double-density. So just shows you how times have changed. Absolutely. Before that, all our prescriptions in our practice were handwritten. And you just can't imagine that these days, how, yeah. how that would work. But that's that's how it did work. So it then evolved that um, other Things became added to it, became a sort of admin system as well. We moved to a multi-user system under Unix, which was um, three terminals, because we started doing the cervical screen recall, we did other recalls, we did other admin type type things on it. And it was only later on when we moved to a multi-user system that um, we started using it in the consulting room. So we put our appointments on it first, then moved to using it in the consulting room. So... Um Obviously, you then became much more involved in, in supporting a wider group of practices. Um, you obviously did quite a bit of sort of software development. Um, tell us a little bit about that sort of... So supporting other practices. So uh, uh, I guess the first part was, was becoming a member of the, what was then the GPASS user group. Um, the, the treasurer had retired and I kindly volunteered to take over and uh, was there for a long time thereafter. Um, so that's probably the first involvement, getting involved with practice from across other areas. Then locally, our um, then GP IT advisor um, took a sabbatical to go to uh, the States for a year. So I, I got his job for a year. Then we came back, he stayed a short time and then left permanently. And I then became the permanent advisor for, for local practices. Okay, and, and I know that you then got quite involved in um, looking at how you extract information usefully from practice systems yeah um so perhaps before that one of the projects we did was um we looked at would gps be able to record instance and prevalence of diseases in practice so that was spread across half a dozen practices in in the, in the health board area so we got practices to try and record information when they diagnosed a new case of osteoarthritis of hip osteoarthritis of knee i can't remember the ones off the top of my head um, and then also look back through the notes to see what was, the, what was the rate of that? And we published a paper on that. I guess that's probably the forerunner of CMR. Which then became a, a national programme yeah. for sort of nearly yeah. 10 years. Yeah. And as part of that project, one of my duties was to, to try and look at the information, collate it all together from across the, the, the practice. So that's probably where that started from. Okay. So um, uh, you, you talked a little bit uh, um, about your involvement with uh, the then GPASS user group. And obviously, you've been a keen sort of supporter of of, of the user group um, over the years. And I wonder maybe if you could sort of think a little or, or reflect a little bit on what you saw as the value of of the the role of the user group and um, and how that was was useful to practices at that at that time. So I think when it was uh, the sort of GPASS days, that um, there was always this this pressure on GPASS from other than users to get things developed. So sometimes we felt the user's voice wasn't being heard sufficiently. Um, so I think the user group was very much a, a focus group for, for bringing that attention to people that this, there are things that the users want that maybe are not seen as priorities by who, who's funding GPASS at that particular time. 
Um, so I think it performed a very useful group. I think it was also a very useful group for sharing because to begin with, Praxis supported their own system. It wasn't as wasn't then the board's responsibility. So people could pick up ideas of how people were doing things in different areas and, and apply it to their own practice. So I think it was very useful in terms of sharing information and experience. When it became board responsibility, I think it became slightly different. Um, and again, it was probably a useful factor to say practices in this area are doing this. Why in our area are we not doing something similar? And I think there's there's that kind of peer pressure element to it. So, I mean, I guess in general, um, you know, the user group has evolved from from being a GPass user group. It then took on the role of of supporting a much wider sort of range of products, if you Mm. like. How how do you think that that worked out? I think, obviously, we went through a a great deal of time of angst at the time that um, we, we were changing systems. And we were quite keen that we still had some kind of focus for the users across Scotland and didn't just disintegrate into two camps because at that point it was kind of just you know vision emis but other things like Docman and ECS and stuff were coming into being and I think it was felt it was useful to somewhere where these shared things could be um, looked at as well because up until then it had been very much in isolation nobody had responsibility or overview of all of these things. And I think up to a point we still serve that function really that, that actually in, in terms of reflecting that um, the totality of the, the GPIT landscape um, and, and that's quite challenging I think it is because I don't think there's anyone else has a handle on that side of things mm-hmm. all these projects have their own views of things and they don't necessarily see the wider picture and I think it's only in, in general practice the wider picture the way that all these systems interact um, one of the issues, I think, has been that we're now dependent on these systems interacting. So when one bit of it breaks, it can have a knock-on effect to the rest. And I think it's important we make sure that it all still ties together. So you've obviously um, recently taken up a role um, supporting the um, GPIT reprovisioning programme. Yep. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about what your involvement with that has been and, 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 and what that um, uh, is going to involved for us in in the near future? So, so obviously as, as part of the GPI to revisioning we had meetings to review the requirements, then meetings to review the responses and I was obviously involved in various groups for that. Then in uh, July last year or June last year I was approached to see if I'd be interested in doing some more work for them. So after much deliberation I'm working two days a week for the GPIT reprovisioning team um, and it involves v- various different tasks. The first and first primary one is dealing with clarification question from suppliers. So what happens is when the requirement goes out, the, the suppliers have put a response, we will do X or we think we're already doing X. But when they come to develop, they sometimes then have additional questions, what about this, what about that? And we'd an issue around the number of repeats, you know, how many repeats can you issue before someone comes in? And currently in one system, it, the maximum is 999. And we don't think that's very sensible because that would be a long time till it was reviewed. So we used a clarification saying, you know, we think it should be this. And then that can bounce back and forth to we come to a sort of mutually agreeable outcome. We've also been creating what are called user stories for all of the requirements. So the, re- the requirement might, might state something like a health board formula will be made available. And then the user story will be around a health board formula should be made available so users can prescribe in a standardised way and cost-effective way so that it gives more meaning to the supplier as opposed to the bare outlines of the requirements. Contextualises puts it. Context, yeah. context yeah. into it, yeah. Okay. So the functional ones, there's 683, I think, and we're down to under 80 to less still to go. 
So you've you've created a, a sort of story behind, a story, yeah. behind each of those. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of modern way of developing software. User right. stories helpful to, to give people the context and how, okay. how it should work. Uh, I guess, and that helps to make sense of, of, of um, the, the reasoning behind... behind yeah, and, and I think one of the roles is, is providing general advice to the team because... Um, it, now that we've got Judith and Louise, it's a bit different. They have experience of working in practice, but a lot of the team have had no experience of working in practice. Therefore, yeah, I can yeah. provide that. This is why, why practice does it that way, or that's yes. why that requirement yeah. is in there. It's, it's, it's background to it. Okay, uh, and so um, obviously, um, in terms of your role as clinical advisor in that, that programme, I'm guessing you're going to look at the wider user community at some point uh, in the future. Um, to get further ideas and help and support. What do you think um, the role of, of the National Users Group might be in, in that process and how can we help you? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's important. We know that you know, the, the way it's set out, there's, there's sort of tranche one and then tranche two six months later. But we're also whether it's going to be a tranche three, maybe a tranche four, whatever we're going to call it. Yeah. So we had a discussion earlier today in, in, in the meeting about you know what happens when something goes out and say well you do it but we don't like it we'd like you to do it better so we need means of capturing that and I think funneling that through the, the user group is probably the best way to do it because they'll have the access to all the users or potentially all the users across Scotland and, and, and I think it's not just being mindful that with the new systems it's aimed not just at GPs it's aimed at the wider practice team you know, a lot of practices will now have you know, physiotherapists as part of them who can also prescribe. There'll be you know, um, mental health workers, community link workers, whatever, whatever different areas call them. So I think it's important that we get their views as well. And, and I guess one of the important things for the National Users Group is to continue to, to try and represent the totality of that multidisciplinary team. And obviously we've got practice management involvement and and um, practice nurse involvement at the moment, but it may well be that we need to look at how do we engage wider with pharmacies, pharmacotherapy type people, particularly yeah. prescribing and that sort of thing. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that, that has evolved. When I first started, it was purely GPs, but as the system expanded, we got practice management input. We've had practice nurse representation for a long time as well, which has always been helpful because they do have a different perspective in using the system to what we do. I don't think there's anyone nowadays who uses all of a GPIT system. We all use bits of it, and some bits are more relevant to us than other people. Yeah. Perhaps I can change tack a little bit um, while we've got a little little bit of time in our hands. Um, Obviously, we're in in the starting phases of of, uh, a coronavirus epidemic. Um, What do you think the role of GPIT can be in supporting how we cope during this difficult time? Yeah, I think we we don't know what it entails. We can make all the plans, but until it actually comes to it and we end up with depleted staff and what have you, we're not going to know for sure how, how to deal with it. Yeah. I know that on occasions in our practice when you know, people are off sick and things happen, you find a way to cope. Yeah. And I think IT is probably important from that point of view and you can use that to... to delegate some of the tasks you can use that to control how you do some of the tasks so you can control access to your appointment system you can control what you do with your medication and stuff but there are limits to what you can do and if there's one of you in the in the practice and there's normally a team of 15 of you being of all staff then you're obviously struggling and it can't sort that i think there was also chat about you know different forms of communication i think 
telephone's very much the, the primary one. You know, I think we we should be using far more telephone communication at this point. Yeah. I mean, if you've got video conferencing, that's nice, but I don't think it should be all end all. Yeah. Simple telephone. Yeah. We certainly found that if our system goes down, we have we actually had five practice mobiles that we could divert calls to, so yeah. that we would still function even if the switchboard is gone, we can still function. And I think people need to look at these kind of ideas because they're simple, they're low-tech, but they work, and you don't need a lot of investment to make it happen. Uh, obviously, one of the, the um, concerns will be people who are um, putting themselves or into quarantine um, or um, have to go into quarantine because they're, they're unwell, but per- perhaps perfectly capable of providing a service, um, how important do you think it is for them to be able to access remotely um, well, clinical it, systems, for example? I, I think, I think it, it's pretty vital, you know, that as you say, if, if you're physically well, you, there, there's still things that you can be doing. There's no reason you couldn't be triaging phone calls, for instance, you know. Yeah. You don't have to sit in a practice to do that. It's one of the things we were actually looking at in Ayrshire is about how we enable remote working in, in various guises, and I think that would be one form of remote working. I think my personal vision is that we should be looking at things like um, across a patch you should have one area that prescriptions go to. So there's no reason, for instance, that you, for five different practices, couldn't print prescriptions in one location, you could have someone sit and sign them. Mm. Because if someone's approved it, then maybe the, the issue isn't there. So we need to look at more flexible working, I think, in terms of how we cope with that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, of course, um, changing systems and processes like that in the face of a disaster can can be quite difficult but um, sometimes it is a, a, a catalyst if you like for, for change. Absolutely you know and you, even if you weren't to go to that stage you could imagine people sitting remotely printing prescriptions to the practice and someone come and collect them to take them somewhere it doesn't you know it's, it's stages of how you do it it's not we can't make it all happen in, in one day as you say even even if everyone was, was available. And, and I think it's also, I, I think it would be interesting to see how this changes people's perception of what general practice is going to be, because it is going to change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think things were changing anyway on the back of some of the, the, the new contract stuff that we've talked and, about. And lack of GPs, yeah. Um, but, but this will undoubtedly uh, focus minds in a way that oh, I think perhaps so, yeah. has not been, been so much mm. the case. So, so I guess then, um, last thing is really in terms of you know, visioning. I suppose um, you've you, you've you've been around the world of GPIT for for a long, long time, Jim. Indeed, indeed I have, uh, yes. Where do you see it going over the course of the next three, four, or five years? What things are, do you think are going to fundamentally change the way we we work with IT? I don't think that things will fundamentally change, but I think there are things around, around the edges that will change. So, um, since working from for NSS, I now have a laptop that I take with me, and that's that's my my standard, I can plug it into other screens and have two or three screens up and do stuff. I think that's one of the ways ahead. I don't think we should think of having a fixed computer in a fixed room anymore. You know, um, a laptop has all the computing power we need and we can add the peripherals to it to make it work the way, the way that we want. So I think mm. that's one way ahead. And I think in areas where we're going to get sufficient 4G and stuff, then we can do stuff live on the system. Mm. And there may be ways around that in terms of the newer systems, in terms of working offline and reconnecting automatically when you get into the right right signal mm. stuff. I think also in the longer term, we're probably going to look more at more voice-activated stuff. 
Okay. It, it's been thought about for ages yeah. and never really quite worked. But I have to say, I now have a car that, with uh, with voice stuff, and it works amazingly well. I had yeah. no trouble picking up my accent. Okay, it's a simpler thing, but I certainly think that for some things it's the way ahead. Not yeah. for everything, yeah. but for yeah. some things. So, um, a, a few things to think about in there, um, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in relation to, to re- GP uh, reprovisioning, Jim, your contribution to all of that work is much appreciated right now, but of course, um, over the course of the last uh, 20, 30 years, particularly mm-hmm. with um, Snug with the National Users Group, um, uh, I know that your, your um, thoughts and contributions are, are much appreciated, so thank you very much for uh, giving me some of your time today. No and, problem. Uh, no doubt we will catch up again soon. That began. Thank you. Thank you. There we are. Many thanks to Jim Campbell for taking the time to have that fascinating conversation. I have no doubt, given his ongoing role in GPIT, we'll have him back for another discussion in the future. As you're aware, the Scottish National Users Group have been making podcasts over the course of the last year. And if you haven't worked this out already, these are available on both the Apple and Google Podcasts and indeed are streamed on the Podbean service. So they're very easy to listen to on your telephone. All you need to do is uh, go and search for Snug. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and listen to some of the other episodes on topics such as Spire, reprovisioning, data sharing, the respect process, prescribing, and others. And GPs could reflect on these for appraisal purposes. We're always looking for ideas for future podcasts, so if you have any thoughts on that, please let us know. You can follow us or find us on Twitter. We have a hashtag SNUsersGroup, that's hashtag SNUsersGroup, and have some chat about what you hear. Many thanks again, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we will be bringing you more in the future. Goodbye. Goodbye.